This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Let's jump into the news roundup. The Democrats have reached a deal. Senator Kirsten Sinema says she will vote for the Inflation Reduction Act now that several tax provisions have been removed. We'll get into exactly what those were later in the hour. But first, a look at the week's primaries, where the biggest news wasn't a candidate, but a measure. And before we go to Kansas, let's bring in our guests. Anita Kumar is the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Anita, welcome. Hi, Sarah. It's great to be back. Julie Rovner is chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News. She's also host of the podcast, What the Health? Julie, always a pleasure. Nice to be here. And my good friend, Ron Elving, is senior editor and correspondent on NPR's Washington desk. Ron, great to see you. Good to be with you, Sarah. So on Tuesday, Kansas voters, big news this week, rejected a ballot measure that would have stripped abortion rights from the state's constitution, or at least a guarantee of them, and opened the door for state lawmakers to ban most or all abortions in that state. Here are some Kansas voters speaking to the BBC on election night. I think that so many people across the country are looking at Kansas tonight. If we can do it here, we can really do it anywhere. Kansas has been historically conservative, but people are opening up more and more to different ideas and policies. Anita, I'll start with you. To what extent does this vote preserve abortion rights in Kansas? Yeah, it does. It does preserve them. And it also means that you know, the abortion clinics in the state can continue to serve not only Kansas, but people from other states around Kansas or in the, you know, in that area that had had banned the procedure after the Supreme Court ruling. So, um, you know, you could expect some people to be traveling to the state as they have been, um, you know, over these last few weeks since since the Supreme Court ruling. Julie, you cover health care. I mean, how important was this first vote on abortion after the overturning of Roe v. Wade? Well, it was huge for a number of reasons. Um, you know, there had been lots of predictions about what would happen politically, what kind of a backlash there would be if the court were to overturn Roe. That's probably one of the reasons why John Roberts didn't want the court to actually, you know, actively overturn Roe. He wanted to maybe preserve the Mississippi law that was at, at stake in that case and, and try and sort of even things out. But what we are seeing, and we've seen this in a number of states, including Kansas, are women going to register to vote. You know, we, we've seen polls that say that, oh, people aren't necessarily going to vote on abortion, particularly on the abortion rights side. But what we're seeing is that when people go to vote, they go to vote on this. There were 100,000 voters in Kansas who were independents, who were ineligible to vote in either of the party primaries who went to the polls merely to vote on the abortion amendment. Ron, you and I both have history in in the Kansas City area. I mean, I think as watching the lead up to this vote, uh, it was kind of unclear what would happen. But I think what surprised people was not just the outcome, but by, by such a large margin, right? And the turnout. The turnout was astonishing. This was an August primary. And the people who wanted this to pass put it on this ballot because they thought very few people would turn out to vote. Maybe 400, maybe 500,000. They got 900,000. They got a number that was comparable to the number of people who voted in the actual midterm election last time in 2018 in November. And in the most populous parts of the state, that would be the Kansas City area, Johnson County in particular, and uh, full disclosure, that's where I went to high school. Uh, And in that county, which is now the most populous in the state, the vote was 68 to 32 in the most populous county in the state. Of course, the same thing in Wichita and Topeka, not exactly to the same proportions, of course, but you saw the measure going down 
in the more populated areas of the state where the growth has been. Uh, most of the people in the state live in the eastern third of the state. And this is uh, kind of an old story around the country, urban versus rural. And that has to do with a lot of other issues as well. But the really astonishing thing was how many people came out to vote. Seventy percent of the people who registered to vote since the Dobbs decision came out were women. Seventy percent. Now, that's disproportionate in anybody's ballgame, and that's really the story here. We hear so much about those um, suburban female swing voters. I mean, Julie, what does this say more broadly about what to expect in the future? Well, it's it's certainly a signal about, you know, are voters going to be moved to go to the polls by the, the Dobbs decision? You know, I've been covering abortion since the 1980s, and one of the things that we've seen is that every time the Supreme Court would do something, it would gin up the other side. So when the Supreme Court would sort of... Uh, expand abortion rights and the anti-abortion, you would see much more activity on the anti-abortion side and vice versa. And I think so this could have been predicted. The other thing was this is, yes, people were surprised because Kansas, pretty red state, even though they have a Democratic governor. Um, in South Dakota, in both 2006 and 2008, there was there were um, abortion referenda on the on the ballot. I actually went to South Dakota both times and, you know, knocked on doors with advocates on both sides. And both times the South Dakota voters defeated the abortion bans. And it was about 55-45. So it was bigger margin in Kansas. But when it sort of settled, it wasn't that much bigger. And I think a lot of it has to do with sort of the, the libertarian streak in the middle of the country. It's like, it's, it's not even as much about abortion. It's about they don't want the government making these decisions. You know, I have spent much of my early career as a reporter in the Midwest and in, in a couple of different states and grew up in the Midwest. And I think this is something that's sometimes overlooked is that sort of independent streak in, in some Midwestern voters. And to your point earlier, Ron, I mean, people imagine Kansas, I think, in the popular imagination as a rural state, and it is, but increasingly so much of the population is in those Kansas City suburbs in the eastern part of the state. Anita, I want to ask you, you know, what do you think this will mean for the larger messaging strategy for for both parties heading into the midterms around this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think Democrats in general were just obviously thrilled and surprised, and maybe they shouldn't have been, but they were. And so I think this really you know, there was a narrative out there that the abortion is a bigger abortion issue is a bigger motivator for conservative voters. And this might signal that's that's not necessarily the case. At least it gives Democrats some hope, not only, of course, on things that they can do with the abortion rights issue, but also just looking around at these midterm elections. You know, Democrats have been sort of down and out. Uh, you know, much of much of this year, even much of you know President Biden's term on a variety of things. Um, even though they they do control Congress and they do control you know the White House, but but between inflation and and some of these other issues, you know, and then and then here came that Supreme Court decision. So I think there are a lot of Democrats around the country who are saying, look, the people have underestimated this. This could be a big issue for them in the midterms, and and this could be something that helps them get people out to vote. With Roe v. Wade overturned, some states are now debating abortion in special legislative sessions. Indiana, for instance, has an abortion ban making its way through the state house. Julie, how successful have these state-led efforts to ban the procedure been so far? 
one of the things we've seen is that Republicans were, you know, everybody talks about how Democrats were not ready for this decision. Well, neither were the Republicans, neither were the anti-abortion side. So we're seeing these sort of internecine battles between anti-abortion activists about how far these bans should go. Um, we've seen it both in Indiana and in West Virginia. Should there be exceptions? If there are exceptions, how do we police those exceptions to make sure that women aren't lying about being raped or that, uh, you know, that what does it mean to actually threaten a woman's health? Could that include mental health? Then anybody could get an abortion. And so they're find they find themselves fighting over these things. They were not actually ready to have Roe overturned and go ahead and institute these bans. You know, this bit, week, oh, go I'm ahead, sorry, Ron. I was just going to say it's a little bit like getting rid of Obamacare. There was never really a substitute ready in case Obamacare had been repealed. And we're seeing the Biden administration take additional action this week on this issue. On Wednesday, President Biden issued his second executive order on abortion. And the Department of Justice is suing the state of Idaho over its abortion ban. Here's U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. Idaho's law would make it a criminal offense for doctors to provide the emergency medical treatment that federal law requires. Although the Idaho law provides an exception to prevent the death of a pregnant woman, it includes no exception for cases in which the abortion is necessary to prevent serious jeopardy to the woman's health. Julie, what's the legal argument here? Well, in 1986, which is my first year covering Congress, they passed something called EMTALA, which is the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. And it was basically to prevent hospitals from what's called patient dumping, from not wanting to treat you know, somebody who didn't have insurance and sending them to another hospital. But the fact is, this is a federal law, and it requires people who present to an emergency room in an emergency to be treated and stabilized, regardless of their insurance status. And this is really about the exception in these abortions laws for, you know, a woman comes in bleeding from an ectopic pregnancy. That's a medical emergency. Um, she needs an abortion. And yet the Idaho law that's supposed to take effect later this month might not cover that. We're already seeing cases of doctors with women who are having problem pregnancies, um, doctors not knowing whether it's legal to provide the care that ethically they're bound to, to, to provide. Right. I've, I've done some reporting on that myself, as ha has my colleague Carrie Feibel. It's a story we're hearing over and over again about, um, you know, women facing often wanted pregnancies, perhaps going into labor well before a fetus could be viable, even with the best medical intervention, going in for care and the doctor saying, we don't know if we can intervene here in what is, you know, the, the standard of care, which is often to, to terminate a pregnancy, to avoid infection or things like that. This is a story we're hearing again and again. Really quickly, uh, Ron, are these actions going to satisfy Democrats who've, who've uh, asked Biden to do more? They won't satisfy them, of course, because they really ultimately won't be satisfied until something can be done to restore the constitutional right to an abortion that was lost with Roe versus Wade. You know, when that decision came down in 1973, it was criticized in part for putting too much power in the hands of doctors. That it was letting doctors make life and death decisions. Well, that is part of what doctors do. And I think we're seeing now what happens when you take that power away. We'll get into more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. It's the News Roundup. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. Before we talk about inflation, Ron, I want to start by talking about the new jobs numbers that just came out. Uh, surprisingly strong. 
528,000 jobs added in the month of July. This was so far beyond expectations and so far above the trend line. And uh, they also revised May and June upward. And the unemployment rate, which has been ticking down for some while, is now down to 3.5%. Now, <laughs> if you were around uh, in the last couple of decades, uh, you know it was first a relief just to get back into single digits. And then when we got down to 8 and 7 and 6, people were really slapping each other on the back. We're at 3.5. So it's extremely unlikely that the National Bureau of Economic Researchers, who decide what is really a recession, are going to see us in a recession, despite the fact that the overall gross domestic product number did shrink two quarters in a row, a little, a tiny bit, but it did shrink. So in a very technical sense, there is one definition by which some people could say we were in recessionary moment, if not times, and we'll see where the economy goes next. But it is clear that there's still a lot of activity and a lot of businesses hiring. Anita, is that enough to, to offset in the, the mood of the public, I guess, the concerns about rising costs, inflation, housing costs? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and we're going to kind of see that because people are still seeing that when they go out and they go to the grocery store and they're shopping um, and they're out traveling, that costs are still high overall. So we'll kind of see how this goes. Um, you know, you can bet that there is already, uh, you know, political lens to this where, you know, Democrats and the president are saying, look, we're headed in the right direction. We're doing the right things. Um, you know, we'll talk about this bill that Congress is looking at, I know, in a little while. So he'll they'll be talking about how all of these things are moving the country in the right direction after this top, tough, you know, year or two with uh, rising costs. But, you know, Republicans are going to say, look, it's it's not enough. Uh, we still have some problems and there and those costs are still really high. So we're going to we're going to see how this goes and we'll have to kind of see what the continuation will be. And let's talk about that. The Inflation Reduction Act. Democrats say they have a deal. Senator Kirsten Sinema says she'll vote for it after some last minute haggling. Ron, bring us up to speed. What exactly did Sinema want and did she get it? Largely, she did. She wanted, on the small side, she wanted $5 billion in drought relief for Arizona, uh, understandably. Uh, every senator is looking out for his or her state. And uh, she also wanted to eliminate from this particular bill the decision to finally get rid of uh, carried interest as a loophole in the tax code. Uh, this is a, an opportunity for people who manage hedge funds and other kinds of super lucrative um, investments to treat their income as ordinary income, excuse me, treat it as capital gains rather than as ordinary income. Now, that's all kind of technical tax talk, but I think this makes sense. 37% is the top rate if it's ordinary income and only 20% if it's capital gains. So they're cutting their tax bill in half by using this loophole. And there's been an effort to get rid of it for a very long time, at least back to 2007, and uh, it keeps failing to get gone because people like Kirsten Sinema, uh, for reasons that I'm sure have to do with their philosophy of taxation and also who get a lot of support from people who take advantage of this tax loophole, uh, they keep standing in the way of it being eliminated. So it's not going to be part of this bill. It was only about $13 billion. This is a $700 billion in some bill. So it's not a game changer. But it does matter to a lot of people who care about tax fairness, and it is going to be one more issue that people who are angry at Kirsten Cinema will be angry about. There, there were some cynical people who thought that it was put into the bill for the exclusive purpose of taking it out to secure Cinema's vote. 
Fascinating. Now, Senate Democrats say cinema was the final Democratic holdout on this legislation. Floor debate is expected tomorrow. Anita, what other challenges, if any, uh, could this bill still face? Well, we still have a big, big thing that we're waiting here um, for the parliamentarian to make her uh, rulings, basically. She's sort of the referee in the Senate. Um, She's going to decide on some of these key provisions here. She's basically trying to decide whether this is a bill that could move forward uh, with just 50 votes. Obviously, the the Senate has this filibuster rule. They need 60 votes, except for certain types of bills uh, that deal basically with revenue and spending and, and the debt limit. And so we're waiting for her to make some decisions on that. They Democrats feel pretty confident um, that they can move forward th- with this in the you know in the next co- in the coming days, and that they'll have all fifty uh, Democrats on board, and of course the Vice President uh, Kamala Harris, who would be that tie-breaking vote. Yeah, because there's no way they're getting anywhere close to 60. After days of protest, the Senate passed a bill earlier this week to expand health care benefits for veterans who've been exposed to toxic burn pits. Those, of course, were used to dispose of trash in Iraq and Afghanistan. Julie, what is in this bill? Well, basically, you're only eligible for veterans' health benefits if you can prove that you have a service-related injury. And so the big fight has been, was this a service-related injury? It had not been. Um, This is something that uh, comedian John Stewart had been very uh, outspoken about, sort of a follow-up to his uh, activities helping uh, get health care for people who got sick because of what they inhaled working on the World Trade Center uh, pile, sort of when they were cleaning up that. So that was something sort of a a New York York-centric issue that he's now expanded to to all veterans. And the, the bill was bipartisan. It wasn't really all that controversial. It was hard to get it through. There was a technical issue where it had to go back to the House, and then so it had to go back to the Senate for a second vote. And because of the Republicans' displeasure with the deal that was struck on the Inflation Reduction Act, um, there was kind of a fit of pique, and a number of Republicans voted against the bill. They had to go and sort of smooth out some ruffled feathers, and ultimately they it was delayed by about a week, but they did get it through. I mean, Republicans like to campaign on being pro-military, pro-veteran. Ron, why had they been holding out on this proposal? Rand Paul, who is a libertarian Republican from Kentucky and uh, often is the sort of outlier uh, on a number of issues, it made the point that under the definition that uh, is being used in this bill, most anything is going to be definable as a service-related injury and that this is going to ultimately cost the federal government lots and lots and lots and lots of money. Uh, Without even necessarily going to the merits of that question, I mean, you, you could always argue that one way and another. But Rand Paul likes to stand out and Rand Paul likes to say, I was the last person standing against this spending and this spending and this spending. And yes, Republicans want to be in favor of veterans, but they also want to be seen as the party that uh, is stingy with a dollar. I want to shift to the primaries. Uh, We talked earlier about Kansas and uh, Neil emails. Note that the margin in Kansas, rural counties that voted for removing abortion from the state constitution was also very small. A typical count was 52 percent pro removal versus 48 percent against. So even rural settings are not one sided on this issue. Good point. I also want to talk about some other votes that happened this week. It was a big day Tuesday for voters in Arizona and in Michigan. Republican Congressman Peter Meyer was one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach former President Trump in 2021. And Michigan voters made him pay for that. Meyer lost his primary to challenger John Gibbs. But Gibbs also got some help from an unlikely corner, 
Democrats. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee spent more than $400,000 on ads to boost the far-right candidate. Anita, what's going on here? What is the Democrats' strategy? Yes, hugely controversial here. Uh, Democrats were really split on this, but you're right. Uh, There were these ads that were out because Democrats this year have tried to Uh, you know, interfere basically in some Republican primaries using these ads that appear to be, you know, attacks on extreme candidates um, to promote, you know, the the challengers. And really the idea here is to line Democrats up against opponents that they think they could beat. Um, So some of these more controversial far-right candidates, Democrats want to be up against them because they think in a general election, they'll be easier to beat. And, And they may be right. We've seen uh, we've seen some of these, uh, you know, Trump-supported candidates come through in a primary and then lose in a general election. So that was what was happening. But I will say the Democratic Party was very split on whether this was a good tactic. And there were people who were saying, look, if you are trying to support uh, democracy, you say that you don't want people that, uh, you know, are contesting the 2020 election. Why are you, Democrats, supporting people that Uh, essentially are saying the 2020 election was rigged, all that sort of stuff. So it was very controversial. It did seem to work uh, in this particular case. And uh, now uh, the Democrat will face uh, this, you know, sort of far right Trump candidate, John Gibbs. Tom in Indiana writes, which MAGA candidates have won their primaries with Democratic monetary support? I realize that this is a dirty but accepted practice that goes back multiple elections, but it particularly stinks in this one. Uh, Ron, I wonder if you can offer any broader context on that. It it particularly stinks in this one because Peter Meyer had done the right thing. This was a freshman from uh, Grand Rapids, uh, from a well-known family in the area, and was the sort of person you could imagine having a very long career as a moderate Republican in in, in Congress representing a moderate Republican part of the world. Uh, And he's being done in here uh, essentially because he did the right thing and and voted – uh, the way his conscience told him to vote. And I'm not necessarily judging the vote except to say that it clearly was not to his political advantage and he was doing it in a self-sacrificing kind of way. So here the Democrats are kneecapping him because he did that and because they think he would be hard to beat. And people should look at this ad. They should look at the ad the Democrats paid to run. Uh, it's saying that uh, John Gibbs is too conservative for Michigan, et cetera, et cetera. But the subtle message is again and again and again, and John Gibbs didn't have the money for his own ads, by the way. Uh, again and again, you see, you see Donald Trump in that ad. And uh, what, they're really, what they're really saying it's very cynical. What they're really saying is if you like Donald Trump, you should be voting for John Gibbs. He's a Trump guy. And it worked. It worked. Now, we're not going to see this in terribly many districts around the country, but we have to say to a large degree the Republicans are doing it for themselves. If you look at Arizona where they had an establishment slate of candidates this Tuesday, this last week, uh, very respectable, typical, conventional Republican candidates running for governor in the Senate and down the list, down the list, state attorney general. And uh, they were all beaten. They were all beaten by Trump-endorsed candidates who were going to be less competitive against the Democrats, not saying they're necessarily going to lose ultimately, but they're going to be a lot less competitive than the standard stock Republican candidates in Arizona would have been. It's a risky move. Uh, Speaking of Republicans who've pushed back against Trump and faced their own pushback, Illinois Congressman Adam Kinzinger had something to say about this on CNN on Wednesday. 
you know, if Peter's opponent wins and goes on to November and wins, that the Democrats own that. Congratulations. I mean, here's the thing. Don't keep coming to me asking where are all the good Republicans that defend democracy and then take your donor's money and spend half a million dollars promoting one of the worst election deniers that's out there. I mean, you know, the DCCC needs to be ashamed of themselves. Thankfully, some members of Congress, Democrats, have spoken out and said they're disgusted. I respect it. I have spoken out against the National Republican Congressional Committee many times when they've done things I've disagreed with. And there are also people that say, well, this is just politics, how cynical that is. And that's why I think Americans are just sick of both parties, to be honest with you. Obviously, a tempting strategy sometimes, but a risky one, as we've said. Anita, are we going to see more of this? Well, as I think the congressman said that there's, you know, and Ron said, I think there's not going to be a ton of places where this can happen, where everything's sort of lined up and exactly right. But, I mean, it, it does show that the not just Democrats, but sort of the party um, has decided that this is a strategy that they are interested in using. So uh, we'll see in some of these coming uh, races what they decide to do. Uh, you know, they they will face some backlash for for how this came out and what they decided to do. So uh, that, you know, there will be some people thinking about some Democrats thinking about whether this was the way to go. I do want to talk more about what's to come in November. Uh, November matchups were set in several key gubernatorial races on Tuesday in Kansas. Democratic Governor Laura Kelly will face Republican Attorney General Derek Schmidt. Michigan voters decided Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer will face GOP nominee Tudor Dixon. Abortion is already shaping up to be a big issue in that race, among others. Julie, what else do these GOP primary wins signal about what what we should be expecting for the general election? You know, in a number of these states, there's a Democratic governor and a very conservative Republican legislature. So in, in these places like Pennsylvania and Michigan, um, you've basically got the governor standing between uh, – serious abortion restrictions. Obviously, now we know that Kansas's constitution will prevent them from instituting a ban, but that doesn't mean they couldn't institute restrictions. Um, so a lot of these governor's races are going to be really important on that basis alone. And, you know, it won't be as clean a referendum on abortion as as some. And there we have several states that will have referenda on abortion. Um, but a lot of these governor's races are going to determine what happens to abortion in those states. And as I think you mentioned earlier, Ron, and it was a big day in Arizona for election deniers. I mean, I want to start with the GOP nominee for Secretary of State Mark Fincham. He's a vocal election conspiracy theorist who is backed by former President Trump. Arizona chose another far-right candidate to face off against Democratic Senator Mark Kelly in November. I mean, how big of a deal is it that we are seeing this trend of, of some pro-Trump Republicans winning? I think it's the story of the fall. I, I really do. I, I think this is the future of the Republican Party up for grabs, uh, in dispute, uh, being contested in state after state. Now, we, we, we generalize about red states and blue states, and, and that's overdone. Uh, but Arizona is, is a state that uh, uh, had only voted for a, uh, a, a Democrat for president once since 1950, before, 19, before 2020. And that was part of the reason why people were so astonished to see Biden win there, if only by a tiny margin. Nonetheless, that's the vote. It's probably up with Georgia for the most recounted, studied, and scrubbed vote. Even the cyber ninjas uh, agreed that that vote, was, that vote was accurate. So, you know, it... it <laughs> The fact that people can get elected 
denying what is before them and and in the face of people who are much more rational and much more Republican, really, truly, uh, in, in a conservative sense, uh, that is a disturbing indicator about what's been going on in the Republican Party. So how these pl- these races play out and whether or not this new Trumpified Republican Party can prevail is really the question of the fall. Before we go to break, some tragic news. Indiana Congresswoman Jackie Walorski was killed in a car crash this week. Walorski, a Republican, was first elected in 2012. Her district director, Zachary Potts, and her communications director, Emma Thompson, were also killed, as was the other person in the car. We'll hear more from you and from our guests in a moment. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. I want to talk next about Alex Jones. How could we not? A jury in Austin, Texas, has ordered the conspiracy theorist Alex Jones to pay $4 million to the parents of a child killed in the Sandy Hook shooting. That could be just the beginning for him. Jones falsely claimed on his show, InfoWars, that the 2012 mass shooting was a hoax. He was then sued for defamation by the victim's parents. Here's Scarlett Lewis, whose six-year-old son, Jesse, was one of 26 people killed at Sandy Hook, speaking in court on Tuesday. Jesse was real. I am a real mom. There's nothing out there. Nothing. There's records of Jesse's birth, of, of me. I mean, I have, I have a history. And there's nothing that you could have found. Because it doesn't exist that I'm deep state. I, it's just not true. I know you know that. That's the problem. I know you know that. And you keep saying it. You keep saying it. Why? Why? For money? I mean, that was such a powerful moment of many powerful moments this week uh, during during that trial. And I just want to ask you, first of all, Ron, if you could sort of set up for us, what did the jury decide yesterday? Um, where did things land? The jury decided that he defamed this family by, by calling them actors, by saying that their son had never existed and repeating it over and over, that, that he, this was a, a deliberate act in which he knew better and continued to carry on the fiction because it was pleasing his audience. It was something that was apparently helping uh, his bond with his audience or his ratings or something to that effect. Uh, the jury found that that, was, that made him liable to them for those damages just for material damages. But now we're going to move on to punitive damages. And now the figure $4 million, I think, is not even going to be the fries with that. So the the attorney uh, for the family uh, suggested that, uh, you know, this was not a tens of millions of dollars matter, but uh, more serious than that. So this is this is going to make it very difficult. Alex Jones has already declared bankruptcy. Uh, it, it, it is a signal, I hope at least in some people's minds, that this this kind of use of the media to spread fantasy, hurtful, wrong, false, accusations against people in this fashion, even in such an offensive case, uh, is not free. You can't walk away from that and just say, I've got a First Amendment right to say what I want. I think one of, one of the most remarkable things about this week was seeing Alex Jones held accountable for the lies he's been telling. On Wednesday, the attorney representing the parents of the victims showed the courtroom text messages 
where Jones mentioned Sandy Hook. Initially, he said he didn't have any messages to turn over. Uh, no, there was this surprising moment in the courtroom uh, when Mark Bankston, the attorney for the Sandy Hook parents, obtained these texts. Julie, you watched some of this online. What happened? Um, it was pretty amazing. Uh, you know, there were ac- the the uh, the family's attorney, the Sandy Hook family's attorney, was accidentally. Uh, given access in a Dropbox to basically the contents of everything on Alex Jones's phone. And they had plenty of time, I guess, to come forward and say, no, you're not supposed to have this. And they didn't. So therefore, it was free game for the, the attorney. And obviously, there was there was so much on that phone that now the January 6th committee uh, is wants to know what was in the phone, because of course, Alex Jones was rather famously at the Capitol on January 6th, uh, exhorting his supporters to go to the Capitol. So now the January 6th committee wants to know what he had on that phone. So this may reverberate well beyond even this case. Anita, what is the January 6th committee going to be looking for if they get access to those messages? Yeah, I mean, they've been looking at what Alex Jones's role in planning the events surrounding that the inter- insurrection. And so now they're looking uh, basically, the the family that we just talked about, who lost their son, their his attorney, their attorney is looking looking for judges' approval to deliver these text records to the prosecutors and to the January sixth committee. So, you know, all we've seen so many things come out of the January sixth committee, but they are looking for how how this came about, who was sort of pushing for people to do what they did at the Capitol. And I think they're going to be looking at his role. I mean, Alex Jones is someone that we've heard about for so many years in so many different uh, conspiracy theories and lies. Obviously, we talked about, you know, you know, uh, the insurrection. He's also been talking about the 2020 election. He was also involved in that Pizzagate uh, theory, if you all remember that, where inspiring a gunman to attack a, a pizzeria in Washington that had there was no truth to it. So I think this is a moment where a lot of people are looking at this case and saying, look, people that are out there telling these falsehoods are are going to be held accountable. Let's see what happens if they are. And, and it, all indications are, at least in this particular time, that he is. And we'll see what happens next. And it's so interesting to see Alex Jones, who's famous for these conspiracy theories you just mentioned, in a courtroom where he's taken an oath to tell the truth and where there are real consequences, not just for people hurt by his lies, but for him. Here's Judge Maya Gamble reminding Jones about this. Your beliefs do not make something true. That is, that is what we're doing here. Just because you claim to think something is true does not make it true. It does not protect you. It is not allowed. You are under oath. That means things must actually be true when you say them. Don't talk. You understand what I have said. I do understand. You understand the instructions I have given you for your testimony in court. Yes. Ron, you alluded to this a moment ago, I think. You know, could this defamation case have a bigger impact when it comes to stopping the spread of this kind of disinformation, which, as we've seen, is harmful? We shall see. We shall see. Uh, it certainly, it gives a roadmap to people who have been harmed. Now, it, of course, egregious cases, right? Uh, this is a super egregious case of what he had said about these families and these children and offensive to such a broad swath of the country. I'm sure they had no trouble at all uh, finding a jury that, that could very honestly say, well, I'm, I'm ready to hear this case. I mean, here we are in Austin, Texas, and far, far from the actual scene of the crime and, uh, and, just, and, 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 and just horrified at what this man was doing. So 
egregious cases do not necessarily make the best law, but it does give you a pathway to test the limits of what might be done to restrain uh, this as what I would call misuse, misuse of the media, misuse of um, of all means of sharing stories and sharing information that are so important to all of us. I mean, it's challenging. The incentives are so out of whack, right? I mean, we, we heard this week about the hundreds of thousands of dollars that Alex Jones could make in a single day, according to some reports, doing what he's doing. Um, so, you know, maybe this is a first step toward reining some of that in. You know, the families had said it's not about the money for them. It really is about holding him to account. And I think they really would like to say that, you know, that maybe other people before they do this will think, well, if Alex Jones can be held to account, maybe I should think about what I say or what I post on social media. Obviously, it's going to take more than this one case, but it's a start. I want to shift now to some health news. President Biden has COVID-19 again or he's tested positive again. He first tested positive two weeks ago, was negative last week. Now he's positive again. This is known as a rebound infection. Julie, you're the health reporter. <laughs> what is rebound positivity? How does this happen? Um, it, it's not that uncommon. Um, it's not, as, as Shish Jha, the COVID coordinator, will keep reminding us on Twitter, it's not terribly common either. Um, but uh, many people who've taken Paxlovid, this happened actually to Dr. Fauci when he had COVID. Take Paxlovid and you very quickly start testing negative, And then within a few days, you're testing positive again. Um, the president has, according to his doctor, is showing very few symptoms. He's had a, a relatively mild course of uh, of COVID, as have many people who have been, you know, double vaccinated and, and double boosted uh, and have taken Paxlovid. Uh, but this is, he is still uh, isolating. It does raise the question of whether people who have a mild case and test and, you know, you get a negative test and you get a negative test the, the next day and then you go about your business and you may actually be testing positive again, um, which may help explain why the this current uh, uh, variant is is spreading so fast, although it's not entirely clear how contagious you are when you test positive after having tested negative. Yeah, it does raise those questions. I mean, I think I first heard about this rebound effect from a from a friend who's pretty young and, and was pres- prescribed Paxlovid and had a rebound. Uh, Anita, you know, how do you think this might this high profile case might affect the way public health officials think about how to advise practitioners on you know how to continue treating this this pandemic, which seems to, to change and shift all the time? Yeah, I mean, as as Julie said, it's not that uncommon, but it's it's the most high profile case we can have, right? We're watching the president say, "Look, it, it's fine. I'm feeling okay. I have mild symptoms. I'm back to work." And then he interacted with people. He was out of isolation, and then all of a sudden, you know, he wasn't back to work. And so, I think there are people that are going to be looking at this and sort of, you know, there are people looking at this and wondering. Uh, both about the drug Paxlovid, what what that means, whether they should take it, you know, what that means about these isolation, um, you know, rules that we have and uh, guidance that we have, and just sort of looking overall at, you know, where are we right now in this country two plus years later? You know, we've seen these ups and downs. Uh, there are so many people, including the president, saying that we're, of course, COVID's not done. Of course, it's still here. But we need to get on um, with with life and get back to how we were living before with some changes. And, uh, you know, it's going to be making a lot of people think that, you know, if this can happen to President Biden, who has the best health care uh, you can have, 
what does that mean about what I should do and, uh, you know, how this works. The, the biggest, you know, sort of selling point from the White House is that this second time that he tested positive, he really is having, you know, next to no symptoms, right? He's feeling fine. It was positive. He did what, what the guidance is telling him to do, which is these five additional days of isolation. But man, those days of isolation get old. <laughs> Um, <laughs> he is in the White House, so fair presumably enough. it's not too bad. <laughs> fair enough. Yes, yes, that helps too. As if COVID were not enough, on Thursday, the Biden administration declared monkeypox a public health emergency. The announcement follows their appointment on Tuesday of a monkeypox czar who will lead the fight against the viral outbreak within the White House. Ron, what does declaring a public health emergency allow the Biden administration to do now? Probably the most important thing is making vaccines more accessible to more people, more available to more people. Uh, and, of course, this illustrates the dilemma of making policy from the White House for these things after what we've been through for the last two and a half years. Uh, the last thing in the world, the last thing any White House wants is to try to supervise another epidemic and to start telling people again they need to get another shot and they need to do this and they need to take this precaution. Uh, th that's just the last thing they want to be able, they want to be forced to do at this particular point in the presidency. And yet, if you do not have a robust response, then you're going to be seen as being negligent, as missing the boat, as making the mistake we made back in early 2020 of hoping it would just go away. And also, in political terms, you're going to be seen as not paying enough attention to the fact that one particular part of the community is especially affected by monkeypox. And so if you ignore it or even begin to downplay it, you're going to seem insensitive. Earlier this week, California and Illinois both declared monkeypox a public health emergency. New York did so last Friday. Anita, why are these declarations coming down now? Yeah, I mean, we've seen uh, more cases. It's not it's not anywhere close to where what we're dealing with with COVID, but we've seen this influx. And, you know, the Biden administration has been criticized for not acting fast enough Um and, and to not for not doing enough. And so what you're seeing, just like we saw with COVID in the beginning, was states saying, look, they're going to have to do what they need to do because they felt like the, the Biden administration um, wasn't doing enough. The United States has the largest number of cases in the world at the moment, and it's and it's spreading fast. So, you know, it's not millions of people. I think it, the infections are at 6,000 or just over that, but it About is spreading 7, 000, fast. About 7,000, I think. 7,000 now. So, I mean, it's going faster and faster. I think less than a month ago, it was about 700. So look at how quickly uh, that has moved up. And, and and there are a lot of people saying, look, we, we learned some lessons at the beginning of COVID that we need to have, you know, testing, we need to have, um, you know, other things available. And they felt like the administration, the federal government wasn't ready for that. And so you've seen some states take action on their own. Julie, fortunately, monkeypox is rarely fatal. But why is the spread so concerning? Um, because this is, it, it, this is an old virus. We've known about it for a long time and had been endemic in parts of Africa. We don't understand why it is spreading so much more easily now. But it's really important to say it's not like COVID. It's not airborne. Um, you, you actually have to have, you know, close contact uh, in order to get monkeypox. And as you say, it's rarely fatal. Um, so it is it is very unpleasant. It's not something that you want to get, but it's not the next COVID. So the goal of this, these steps is to, to get a handle on yes. it, stop that spread. 
We've been talking with Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News, Anita Kumar, Senior Editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico, and Ron Elving, the Senior Editor and Correspondent on NPR's Washington Desk. Thank you all so much for joining us. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. It's the global edition of the News Roundup. China has now sanctioned House Speaker Nancy Pelosi for her visit to Taiwan. But that's not all. A court in Moscow sentences Brittany Griner to nine years in prison. But Russia signals it's open to a possible prisoner swap. And the U.S. kills one of the world's most notorious terrorists from under the noses of the Taliban. Joining us this week, David Lawler, World News Editor at Axios. Dave, great to have you back. Good to be with you. Laura Seligman covers the Pentagon for Politico. Laura, happy Friday. Thanks so much for having me. And Nina Maria Potts is Director of Global News Coverage for Feature Story News. Nina Maria, thanks for your time today. Hi there. Good to be with you. I want to start in Kabul. The Taliban says it did not know the leader of al-Qaeda was staying in the Afghan capital. That denial came four days after President Biden announced a U.S. drone strike had killed Ayman al-Zawahiri at a house he was occupying in downtown Kabul. In a televised address on Monday, President Biden stressed the al-Qaeda leader was still looking for ways to harm Americans. He made videos, including in recent weeks, calling for his followers to attack the United States and our allies. Now, justice has been delivered. We we make it clear again tonight that no matter how long it takes, no matter where you hide, if you are a threat to our people, the United States will find you and take you out. I'd like to check in with each of you and just ask what stands out about this attack and what does it say about both the U.S. intelligence and uh, those now in charge of Afghanistan? Dave, I'll start with you. So the details of this operation are pretty fascinating, actually. The, the uh, CIA tracked members of Zawahiri's family uh, to this house, safe house in Kabul. Uh, they eventually identified a man there as Zawahiri himself. And at that point, uh, they brought in the White House. There were some consultations about the operation. Eventually, President Biden was called in. They showed him a scale model of the house uh, to talk through the potential operation Biden gave his go-ahead, and then within a week of that, they had a clear shot at him on a balcony at this house uh, and used a missile fired from a drone to take him out. So they they went into some level of detail, they being the White House, to describe just how they carried out this operation, uh, which was really in central Kabul, which is obviously another major aspect of this story. Yeah, Laura, what do you make of that and the Taliban's claims that they didn't know Zawahiri was there? I mean, it's certainly true that as the Taliban is not very centralized, there are some elements of the Taliban that may have known that Zawahiri was there and some elements that may not have known. But certainly it is very striking, the fact that Zawahiri was hiding in the capital of Afghanistan, just right under their noses. And it kind of highlights the fact that we really cannot trust the Taliban to keep to their end of the deal that they made 
way back when in the Doha agreement to not harbor terrorists. It's very, very likely that at least some members of the Taliban knew that he was hiding out there. So on the one hand, it is a, a the strike, the successful strike is a good sign that we are able to still carry out some counterterrorism um, to great effect from, as they say, over the horizon, which just means from outside of Afghanistan. In this case, the drone um, came from the Gulf, uh, which is is a long distance, and it's impressive that our military could do that. Um, but on the other hand, this is the first such drone strike in almost a year, ever since actually the, the last one was uh, the one that the U.S. military took in Kabul at the um, near the airport that actually killed 10 innocent people. It was actually a mistaken strike. So uh, that also says something about just how difficult it is to conduct counterterrorism without American soldiers, American boots on the ground. And Nina Maria, what's your biggest takeaway? I'm particularly interested, if you could comment on what this says about U.S. intelligence in particular. Um, Well, I mean, I think just drilling down on the nature of the Doha uh, agreement, um, you know, as we just heard there, both sides are accusing the other. Um, That was obviously the agreement that was signed between Donald Trump and the Taliban two years ago. Um, And the US says that by sheltering al-Zawahir in Kabul, the Taliban grossly violated the terms of the Doha agreement. Uh, They reassured everyone that they wouldn't harbor terrorists and uh, Blinken on Tuesday saying that the Taliban had betrayed the Afghan people and now makes it impossible for Afghanistan to regain uh, recognition from the international community. Worth saying also that the Doha agreement um, was fragile to begin with. There was no vehicle really for its enforcement. But on on U.S. intelligence uh, and what it says about U.S. intelligence, I mean, I I think, um, you know, it is an extraordinary uh, strike. Uh, The fact that he was in plain sight, as everybody said and commented on a balcony in downtown Kabul, uh, suggests that, um, you know, he was he was there and strikeable. Biden is is meant to have spent a few weeks weighing up uh, whether or not to to conduct the strike. Uh, And I think it says extraordinary things about the capabilities of U.S. intelligence, despite the absence of boots on the ground, as Laura just said. Yeah, and about the Doha Agreement's role in this, uh, John Kirby, the National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications at the White House, spoke to Fox News about this. This is what Kirby had to say, uh, essentially, to the Taliban. We hold this as a violation of the Doha Agreement. We made that very clear. I think the fact that we were able to take out Mr. Zawahiri in downtown Kabul without a scratch to anybody else sends a pretty powerful signal to the Taliban and anybody else who might harbor uh, al-Qaeda terrorists going forward. Dave, is al-Qaeda the powerful network that it once was? Um, Well, the U.S. is still quite concerned about al-Qaeda. Obviously, uh, it has moved down the sort of threat ranking from the number one spot uh, to uh, a little bit lower. And that's partially a testament to the fact that uh, it has you know, had to sort of reconstitute itself after uh, some pretty successful counterterrorism operations uh, against it. And also the fact that there are a number of other, not only jihadist organizations, but other kind of transnational threats that the U.S. is worried about. Uh, Zawahiri has been in charge or had been in charge since uh, 2011 after bin Laden was killed. Uh, and that time was not necessarily a particularly successful in, in Al-Qaeda's metrics, I guess, period of time. Um, they had not conducted 
conducted as many kind of high-profile attacks as obviously uh, the ones we'll all remember on 9/11 and also U.S. embassies. Um, but you know, they but Zawahiri was trying to keep the network together, and according to the White House, was still actively involved in planning operations overseas. So they say this will have an effect on Al Qaeda's capabilities, uh, perhaps. You know, I, I certainly don't have enough visibility inside the organization to know whether that is, in fact, the case. We have a comment from Al in Idaho. He says, it's hard to believe the Taliban didn't know that murderer wasn't living right next door to them. He says, I bet they would have known if a girl was going to fourth grade in the area, which raises one question. You know, the Taliban has, um, I think, made motions to uh, suggest that they might be uh, – more supportive of of education for girls and they might be different this time around, essentially. Nina Maria, what are we seeing? Well, I mean, the Taliban has pledged to launch an investigation into the incident from all sides, uh, which suggests that they are open to... Uh, at least keeping keeping the channels open with with the U.S. Um, but it's it's extremely worrying when you see other signs of uh, intimidation. We heard this morning that the Pakistan bureau chief uh, for the Indian TV channel Weon was detained by the Taliban overnight. Uh, he actually went to the safe house where Zawahiri was living. Uh, he was detained. He was handcuffed with a hood over his head. He went missing for twelve hours. Uh, He is now free and on a plane. Uh, He left Afghanistan. Uh, But he says his driver and fixer are still being held. And there's some speculation that the Taliban was taking a swipe at Pakistan uh, for its alleged involvement in Zawahiri's protection. So, um, you know... it's 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 a mixed signal, I think, that we're getting from the Taliban and very difficult, I think, to um, uh, take their messaging as anything other than disingenuous. Laura, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, uh, so-called over-the-horizon operations. This was one of them, of course. How might the use of this kind of technology raise questions about the size of the U.S. military being as big as it is, given that technology is playing such an important role? No, that's a really interesting question. And look, the the over the horizon counterterrorism approach is one that was discussed, um, has been discussed for months and and years, especially when it relates to Afghanistan, um, as far back as when President Biden announced that we were going to withdraw completely from the country. That, of course, made it the only option the U.S. military had to persecute terrorists within Afghanistan was to use this over the horizon capability. And yes, this was an impressive strike, but I will say that it's it's really difficult to do these missions from so far away. Afghanistan is a huge, huge country, and really the only bases, military bases we have close by are in the Gulf and hundreds, hundreds of miles away. And really the only technology we can use to do these strikes are uh, the sort of long-range loitering drones with Hellfire missiles that that you saw um, in the Zawahiri, the Zawahiri strike. Excuse me. Um, so I think that one, it's definitely something that the U.S. military has been particularly concerned about. And you've seen that in the mistaken strike last year that um, mistakenly killed 10 innocent civilians. And you've seen that in the fact that we've we haven't taken any strikes since then. So yes, it does point to the fact that we are able to do these operations, but it also highlights the fact that it's extremely, extremely difficult to do. And I think that's something that the Pentagon will be taking lessons from and mm-hmm. watching as we go forward in Afghanistan. 
On Thursday, the White House summoned Chinese Ambassador Chen Gong to Washington to condemn an unprecedented amount of missile launches aimed at Taiwan. The island said China launched at least 11 missiles around its coasts, and Japan said five missiles landed in its waters. This comes after Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan earlier this week. It was the first time a House speaker has visited the self-ruled island in 25 years. National Security Council Coordinator John Kirby said in a statement, quote, We condemned the PRC's military actions, which are irresponsible and at odds with our longstanding goal of maintaining peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait, end quote. Nina Maria, what do you make, first of all, of this summons from the White House? Well, I mean, it's an indication of how serious things have become. I mean, Nancy Pelosi left in her wake a wave of um, mixed and muddled messaging over the significance of her visit here in D.C. Uh, China, on the other hand, can't be clearer in its messaging. Uh, So maybe this will force the Biden administration to get its narrative straight. Uh, Some pretty serious developments uh, overnight. Uh, The Chinese foreign ministry has announced the suspension of climate talks. That was the one area of cooperation uh, that certainly the U.S. always cites as uh, an area that could be, you know, separated off or siphoned off from the state of the political relationship. And there are a whole host of other uh, sanctions and actions uh, that have trickled through from China. Uh, Domestically, she returns to a bit of a mess in Washington. Uh, Warnings from experts on China about the long-term damage that her visit has caused. Uh, Republicans have appear to have applauded her for her, you know, snubbing of Beijing. Um, I think the Biden administration's handling of the narrative is certainly for me the most explosive issue because it does not inspire much confidence that this administration would know how to handle an invasion of Taiwan, uh, whether it's her visit that inflamed tensions with Beijing or not. Uh, You know, we've had a lot of clarity from Beijing Uh, both in the run-up to this visit and the wrapping up of her visit. Uh, Here, there's been a kind of muddle of denials and contradictions. So there's that. Um, And I think separately, it's worth kind of pointing out that um, there's a difference just narrowly on the missiles, which, you know, clearly is unprecedented. China's action at that level is un- unprecedented. Um, but there's a difference between the activity around Taiwan, uh, you know, the fact that the Chinese military has encircled the island, uh, and a difference between whether or not it could actually attack and whether it could reach Taipei. Um, so presumably, the Biden administration is weighing that all up. Um, but I, I personally think quite strongly that the Biden administration has mucked this up. Dave, I mean, how seriously do you regard these military drills by China? To what extent is China, you know, just flexing its military might or is something more going on here? So one thing that might be going on here is China is using this crisis in order to basically hold a dress rehearsal for the steps it would have to take to subdue uh, Taiwan if it did intend to take the island by force, which, of course, uh, the Chinese government has been threatening to do. Um, so that's one one factor here. The second is that, obviously, um, you know, as Nina Maria was saying, the Chinese have been quite clear at how seriously uh, they take this. They've called it a grave violation um, of their... 
sovereignty and territorial integrity, basically a slap in the face um, to China. There was a statement from the foreign minister saying this isn't the China of the 19th century anymore. Basically, stop messing around with us. We were, you know, a force to be reckoned with now. And so, obviously, uh, I think we need to take all of the signals and the steps that China is taking quite seriously. Now, whether this uh, these operations, these exercises will lead to an actual military uh, operation, you know, to try to uh, inflict some damage on Taiwan or even to take Taiwan. I think most experts think that's not the case, that, um, you know, they've laid out a timetable for these exercises. I think we're in day three of four or five days that they've said. Of course, that could change. Um, but right now, I don't think we're on sort of, uh, you know, DEFCON uh, one in terms of the the threat to Taiwan, uh, but obviously you know this could unfortunately be a sign of things to come, uh, and we're seeing the the timelines that are out there from intelligence uh, from experts on when a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan could happen. They seem to be narrowing a bit from you know 2030, 2027 was out there. People have said 2025 or even sooner, and so this is quite a serious threat that potentially uh, China could make a move on Taiwan and that the U.S. would then have uh, a series of very difficult decisions to make in terms of to what extent uh, they're willing to risk a full-scale war with China over Taiwan. I just want to hear a little bit from Speaker Pelosi's trip this week. Uh, while she was there, she offered support uh, during a meeting with Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen. Today, the world faces a choice between democracy and autocracy. America's determination to preserve democracy here in Taiwan and around the world remains ironclad. China, of course, viewed the trip as a violation of the One China policy, which, under which the U.S. recognizes the People's Republic of China as the sole government of China, but unofficially maintains relations with Taiwan. Chinese officials did not mince words over the trip. 25 years ago, Speaker Gingrich visited Taiwan. It was completely wrong. The Chinese side was firmly opposed to it from the start. The U.S. side should draw lessons from it instead of making repeat mistakes. So China's sovereignty cannot be infringed and the Chinese people cannot be humiliated. That's China's ambassador to the U.S., Chen Gong, speaking to CNN's John King. Laura, Pelosi's trip was part of a larger Asian trip, but what was the reason for her visit to Taiwan? So the the backstory to this is is really interesting. Um, this this trip has been discussed for for quite some weeks before it actually happened. Um, and Nancy Pelosi, um, she's second in line to the president, and and she is, was planning this trip as um, sort of a farewell tour to cement her legacy. And, and she actually has a long history of being a China hawk. In fact, she was chased out of Tiananmen Square thirty one years ago to protest the massacres. So this is this is a big big issue for her. And she did not want to back down, even when the White House and the Pentagon told her not to go. And they knew that it would cause problems, especially as tensions were already high in the South China Sea. China has recently been conducting more intercepts, um, buzzing U.S. and allied aircraft. And of course, part of this is that President Xi has his 20th party congress coming up, where he's going to seek an unprecedented third term. But I, I wanted to sort of break down from a military perspective 
perspective, just the significance of the exercises that are, are happening. Um, we've seen, of course, China overflying the median line before. The median line is um, the line that separates Taiwan's territorial waters from those of China. We've seen them overfly that line before with aircraft. But what's really big here is that they are now sailing across that line with ships and saying that they're going to erase that median line. And that is a big change to the status quo that could set a dangerous precedent. And then, of course, these missile launches that um, Dave and Nina Marie already talked about, these are really, really big too, especially launching missiles over Taiwan, landing in Japan's territory. That's also never been done before, and it's extremely provocative. So while I agree that uh, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan is not imminent, this is certainly a test run for some kind of attack. It, it could even go as far as this is the initial phase of an invasion of Taiwan, the intimidation um, of a long campaign that could last for years even. China is not quite ready, perhaps, to, to conduct an actual amphibious landing of Taiwan. That would be very difficult. But certainly the Chinese military is on the way to getting there. And this is obviously a goal of theirs. So we should be very concerned. Now, leading up to this trip, of course, President Biden expressed some concern. He spoke about Pelosi's trip saying, quote, the military thinks it's not a good idea. Meanwhile, Pelosi's trip was backed by leading Republicans on Capitol Hill. I'm about to use four words that I haven't used in this way before, and those four words are Speaker Pelosi was right when she decided to include Taiwan on her visit to Asia. We know what the Chinese would like to do to Taiwan, just exactly what they did to Hong Kong. So I approve of her trip. I think she did the right thing. We just heard Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and his Republican colleague, Senator Roy Blunt. They were among 26 Republican lawmakers who released a joint statement supporting Pelosi's visit. Nina Maria, I think you alluded to this earlier. I mean, it is obviously unusual to see Pelosi's actions heralded by Republicans while President Biden expresses hesitation at best. What do you make of that? Well, at the moment, it's a win for Pelosi, and there's no question that she stood up to a point of principle. Why shouldn't she visit Taiwan? Of course, she should be able to visit Taiwan. I mean, the the whole um, idea that she she should have been um, sort of bullied into submission is is ridiculous. It's equally ridiculous um, to suggest that it was just an innocuous visit. I mean, she's second uh, in line to the U.S. presidency, so um, you know, I, I think it could go south still a lot further for the Biden administration. I mean, lots of people are drawing comparisons between, uh, you know, the Russia-China analogy, uh, between NATO's ambitions to expand uh, despite Russian intimidation uh, and, you know, further U.S. engagement in Taiwan are seen by some critics as unnecessary triggers. I think just building on Laura's point about military capabilities, it's worth mentioning that there's a lot more that China can do that is not uh, linked to military action, which could play very badly for the Biden administration too and is of real concern. Uh, and that's the isolation of Taiwan. Taiwan imports over 60% of its food, almost 100% of its energy, its economy is massively dependent on China, 40% of its exports go to China. An economic blockade uh, could literally starve the island. Uh, so the question then is, what's the Biden administration going to do about that? 
Uh, and, you know, I, I think there are hard questions for the way that the Biden administration has handled uh, this visit, you know, either get on the same page uh, or at least be explicit about how you handle a crisis off the back of it. I want to move on now to news out of Ukraine and Russia, starting with an update on Russia's case against WNBA star Brittany Griner. She was sentenced to nine years in Russian prison on charges of drug smuggling and possession. The verdict comes nearly six months after her arrest at a Moscow airport with cannabis vape cartridges found in her luggage. So, David, first of all, I mean, this is obviously a charge that in the U.S. would be, um, I think, wouldn't even be be a charge in some places. But a nine-year prison sentence, I mean, how typical is that in Russia, Dave? So I I think we should not view this as a normal judicial process. Um, This case, I think, has likely been political from the very beginning in Russia and certainly is now that you have an arms swap on the table. The U.S. has said publicly that it has proposed uh, a prisoner swap to bring Griner and Paul Whelan, another American held in Russia, home. Uh, They haven't confirmed this, but it's reportedly for Victor Boot, who's a pretty notorious arms uh, dealer. And so, uh, you know, I, this this was a potentially an initial phase was the ending of the trial, the issuing of the sentence, which is obviously uh, for for Griner the idea of potentially spending nine years in a Russian prison. You know, she doesn't speak uh, Russian; she's a target uh, as an American, as a lesbian, as an African American. Um, so this is a, a quite uh, a horrible, uh, you know, horrifying scenario for her. Hopefully, uh, what this is though is the first step. Uh, in actually securing a prisoner swap. Um, They were always likely to bring her trial to a conclusion before they agreed uh, to a deal. So we don't know yet whether that swap will come off, but that is certainly the hope of the Biden administration that they won't, that she won't ultimately spend nine years in prison, that they'll be able to strike a deal to bring her home. Laura, what can you say about the apparent strategy here? I mean, how is it in Russia's political interest to keep Greiner in prison for such a long time? or at least threatened to? Well, it certainly seems like Griner has become a political pawn in Russia's larger war against Ukraine and the, the international establishment. Um, I, I mean, it, as Dave said, this is this is not normal. Um, this is clearly something that Russia is trying to use as leverage to uh, get concessions out of the U.S. and the international establishment. But but more importantly, I think it's, it's um, something that that, is, that Russian President Vladimir Putin is very good at doing, and that is just causing general chaos, um, causing general problems throughout the international community. I think he won't he won't miss an opportunity to do that, and I think he knows that something like a prisoner swap is something that would be very important to the United States. He could get a lot of concessions from it, but I think, as I said, more importantly, it's just muddying the waters, causing chaos, and that's something that is most definitely in Vladimir Putin's uh, playbook. I want to turn quickly to the global food crisis sparked by the war in Ukraine. This week, ships carrying grain departed from Odessa for the first time since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February. Nina Maria, how much grain is getting out and do we know where it's going? Well, it's a small diplomatic breakthrough, certainly. Uh, Three more grain ships left uh, Ukrainian ports uh, on Friday. Uh, we've got the first inbound cargo vessel uh, since the invasion, uh, and that started loading. Uh, Kiev calling for the safe 
passage uh, of these ships. So, you know, clearly uh, wanting it to be extended to other cargo and all this under this deal to free up more than 20 million tons of uh, Ukraine's grain supplies. But let's not forget, this is while whole populations of the world are starving. I mean, we've been doing a lot of reporting from our various Africa bureaus, uh, where the starvation and you know food insecurity crisis is just getting worse. We have a team that has been reporting on the ground this week from the port of Sudan. Uh, and in Sudan alone, there are more than 11 million people who are facing starvation. Um, so, yeah, not just because of the war in Ukraine, also because of political st- instability in Sudan and a coup and so on, uh, but desperately, desperately, desperately in need of wheat and grain. Um, and so for them, you know, the invasion's obviously been a humanitarian disaster. Um, in terms of um, how much grain we're expecting to see move, um, you know, something like 600,000 tonnes uh, are at the ports, um, but it's a fraction of what was moving before. News from Glasgow, Scotland, which is rarely a background for a Hollywood movie. That now remains the case. This week, Warner Brothers Discovery pulled the plug on Batgirl, which had been shot entirely in the Scottish city. The producers had already spent $90 million on the movie, but reports say it tested poorly and the project was scrapped. Former President Trump met with Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban on Tuesday. Trump endorsed the far-right authoritarian leader in January, and this meeting came days after Orban made comments that argued against mixing races. Dave, first off, just tell us more, if you would, about these comments. Sure. So Orban said that uh, Hungary did not want to become a mixed race uh, society, basically uh, making an argument, um, at least indirectly, for racial purity in in Hungary. So this was something that was condemned uh, pretty widely, including by one of his advisors, uh, who is Jewish, and resigned over the comments saying that they were Nazi-style rhetoric. So this is uh, this was all in the backdrop of Orban's big trip to the U.S. this week, uh, including a meeting with Trump and a speech at CPAC, uh, the conservative conference that was taking place in Texas. Right. And he was among the convention's headliners. He opened it in Dallas yesterday. And again, we're talking about a man who said he opposes what he described as race-mixing, Nina Maria, what does the invitation to Orban from CPAC signal to you about where the GOP and the conservative movement is right now in the U.S.? Um, I think that Orban has become a hero of the American hard right. Isn't that surprising? But it is veering on the edge of an un, a kind of an, an obsession. Um, so if you look at what is it about Orban that appeals to the American right, uh, you know, we can listen. He's a right-wing populist and he shows you can achieve a lot if you put your mind to it. He's managed to stay in power for 12 years. Uh, he's promoted conservative values. Hungary isn't really a democracy anymore. Uh, he's done things like build a border fence to keep migrants out. He talks about Christian values. Uh, he's manipulated electoral laws in his favor. Uh, he controls Hungar- Hungarian institutions, uh, including the media. And he's done that by putting his own people in. He's managed to effectively wipe out the opposition. He's given his friends and family um, 
a lot of money. They've got richer and richer. So, of course, that uh, appeals to characters like former President Trump. Uh, he's wiped out gender studies in universities, which is music to the ears of the hard right in this country. Uh, and, you know, Orban has found friends here that he hasn't found in Europe. He is very isolated in Europe. He hasn't got many friends. Uh, and I think, you know, when he makes controversials like less drag queens and more Chuck Norris, which he did at CPAC, uh, it seems that that elicits a standing ovation. So make what you will. Moving on, on Wednesday, the U.S. became the latest NATO member to support Helsinki and Stockholm joining the alliance. President Joe Biden hailed the vote as historic. There were a few dissenting voices in Congress. Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri was the only one to vote no. The Senate rejected an amendment from Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, who sought to emphasize that Article 5 of NATO's treaty does not supersede the ability of Congress to declare war. I want to hear just a little bit of Senator Paul's argument. James Madison argued, in no part of the Constitution is more wisdom to be found than in the clause which confides the question of war or peace to the legislature. Some have argued that a vote for my amendment is to go wobbly on NATO's Article 5 commitment. I would argue that gold star parents and our men and women in the field don't want Congress to go wobbly on the Constitution. Dave, unpack this for us. First of all, what is why is NATO's Article 5 important? And why do you think that Paul's argument didn't win over more Republicans? Sure. So Article 5 is the bedrock of NATO, basically. It says that if uh, a member is attacked, uh, all of the other members are sworn to to protect them. It's only been invoked once after September 11th uh, when NATO intervened in Afghanistan. But uh, it is the reason, really, that you see Finland and Sweden now, uh, you know, very belatedly getting on the NATO bandwagon. These are countries that have been uh, neutral for decades, but after Russia invaded Ukraine, they decided that they wanted to get under the Article 5 umbrella and basically ensure U.S. and, and Europe-wide uh, protection in the event of really an invasion from Russia. And so that's the context in which this vote was happening in Congress. You know, there is uh, a lot of support for Congress across both parties, or sorry, support for Ukraine across both bodies in Congress. And there is also this strain out there, not necessarily overlapping with what Rand Paul is saying, uh, but that actually the U.S. should be worried less about helping out Europe protect itself. Why can't Europe protect itself? And we'll worry about, you know, ourselves here at home or maybe worry a bit about China. And that was the argument that Josh Hawley was trying to make. Uh, but this was kind of a test of how deep that America first sentiment is uh, in the Republican Party, at least. And for now, maybe this is because of the Ukraine context and everybody uh, doesn't want to send signals that they're not supporting NATO uh, at this particular time. But uh, 95 to 1 to 1, uh, there was uh, Paul abstained in the end. That was the vote. It was a sign that there's still support for NATO in Congress. Right. I mean, uh, Josh Hawley and Rand Paul's concerns notwithstanding, there was never any real doubt that this vote in Congress would pass. Uh, but that's not enough. All 30 NATO members have to approve and ratify the accession protocols in order for Switzerland and Finland to join. Uh, Laura, who, which of the nations might not be up for that? 
So what we've heard is that Turkey is really the nation that is holding out uh, or potentially could be holding out on approving uh, NATO membership for Finland and Sweden. And the reason is, goes back a long way. It's um, Basically, it's been accusing uh, Finland and Sweden of being soft on and harboring the Turkish Kurds, which uh, Turkey, um, they view as a terrorist group. And this goes back, this also has ramifications in in the the war in Syria. Um, as you'll recall, Turkey invaded northeastern Syria to um, to take it from control of the Syrian Kurds. So uh, this group, these groups have links to the PKK, which have made terrorist attacks um, in Turkey, and so their concerns are are valid in in Turkey's eyes. But it certainly uh, goes arm in arm with Turkey trying to kind of balance this line between the West and Russia, even. As we saw in um, the grain deal that was that we discussed previously, Turkey was a major player in in um, in striking that deal, and in fact, it was signed in Turkey. And Turkey will be one of the ones monitoring the agreement. So Turkey's approval is one that Finland and Sweden are going to have to win if they want NATO membership. Um, it's unclear at this point how that's going to go. It seems likely that we'll be able to get some concessions and that Turkey will eventually withdraw its disapproving vote, but it's it's kind of unclear right now and we'll have to see how everything goes with the conflict and, and the grain deal especially. Of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has put the spotlight on NATO. Nina Maria, to what extent has NATO been rehabilitated and strengthened as a result? I think um, it, it definitely has. I mean, I think the interesting character and in, in certainly on the, the U.S. side uh, has been Mitch McConnell. Uh, he went to Sweden and Finland uh, in May. He was part of a congressional delegation. He met with President Zelensky. He was the one that really pushed through uh, the ratification here in the U.S. as a priority. Um, and, you know, the argument being that Sweden and Finland are healthy, strong democracies, even as David Dave said that, you know, they were they were neutral and have been for a very long time, uh, Finland at least spends 2% of its GDP on defense, uh, which is the target set by uh, NATO. And Mitch McConnell's view is that, you know, by voting to ratify Sweden and Finland, um, it really sends a strong signal to other countries as well. And of course, the elephant in the room is China. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it does, you know, obviously strengthen NATO against Russia, sends a strong signal. Russia has threatened uh, deploying nuclear weapons to the border uh, if it if it goes through um, but uh, yeah I mean I think there's a risk also that other countries are a little bit lukewarm I mean just to add uh, to Turkey um, there's also Greece the Czech Republic uh, Portugal Slovakia and Spain they've been holding out I mean we expect them to ratify by the autumn uh, but we're not quite over the line yet Yesterday, negotiators from Iran, the U.S., and the European Union resumed indirect talks over the tattered Iranian nuclear deal. The talks in Vienna come at a time when international inspectors report that the Islamic Republic is expanding its uranium enrichment. Uh, Laura, for months, the U.S. has been talking about time running out on reviving this deal. Why are they talking now? 
so they are talking now and that is that is good news but both sides are actually downplaying the prospect of a breakthrough in this particular round even white house spokesperson john kirby said yesterday that the negotiations are running out of time the u.s has put a deal on the table and they're not going to wait forever for iran to take it so the background is that a broad outline of a revived deal was basically agreed to back in march but talks actually broke down more recently because Tehran has been demanding that Washington remove its Revolutionary Guard Corps from the U.S. terrorism list, which is something that it seems like is just not going to happen. It's just a non-starter. And of course, the talks are also complicated right now by the fact that Iran recently announced that it now has the technical ability to produce a nuclear warhead, although, of course, although it denies that it has any plans to do so. And one big problem with the delay in the talks and in reaching a deal is that it's meant that Iran has gotten so far in its nuclear program that it will be difficult to monitor any agreement, even if a deal is reached. Um, and now, of course, that Tehran is considered to be a threshold state, which means it's it's capable of making a nuclear bomb if it wishes, it has much more leverage in the talks. And Tehran also has a bunch of other demands that, that Washington just is not interested in meeting, including guaranteeing that no U.S. president in future can abandon the deal, as President Trump did. Um, but these are just things that are non-starters for the U.S. So as I said, both sides are downplaying and there's really not a lot of hope that a revived deal is going to be agreed to in this round of talks. Another big story tied to Iran has been playing out on a stoop in Brooklyn. The U.S.-based Iranian journalist Masi Alinejad is blaming Iran for sending an armed man to her home to, quote, get rid of her. Police arrested a 23-year-old after he was spotted outside her Flatbush home. And Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, is now weighing in. He tweeted Thursday, quote, I called Masi Alinejad on behalf of President Biden to express concern about her safety and thank her for her human rights advocacy. The U.S. will use every tool to disrupt and deter threats from Iran, including those that target U.S. citizens and dissidents living in the U.S. On Monday, Alinejad spoke to CNN delivering this direct message to those who are trying to intimidate her. I want to tell you, go to hell. I'm not scared of you. You can kill me, but you cannot kill the idea. The idea is just fighting for freedom, dignity. And here I have a message for Biden administration. Throughout all the Iranian diplomats, why they are here, kick them out. If you don't believe me, they're going to come after more American citizens. Dave, what more can you tell us about Alina Jab and Jad and why she's being targeted? Sure. So she first came to prominence for a campaign uh, in which uh, she encouraged women to share photos of themselves without the hijab, which is mandatory uh, to wear in Iran. Uh, she has uh, taken on a broader range of, of activism uh, and journalism since then. She's become sort of a top critic in exile from New York of the Iranian government uh, and has uh, she says, been a target of the Iranian government uh, for years now, including members of her family being arrested and intimidated back in Iran, uh, and also a kidnapped a kidnapping plot against her uh, that was foiled, that she says was directed by Iranian intelligence. So this is the latest incident, and perhaps uh, the most frightening. She shared video of a man on her stoop, uh, security camera footage, 
you know, ringing her doorbell trying to get into her house. Uh, later, that man was arrested with an AK-47 in his car. Um, so this is the reason why this has become, you know, major news this week and why the U.S. Uh, government, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, felt the need to reach out to her and assure her that the administration would do everything it could to protect her and other Iranian dissidents inside the United States. As we wrap up, I want to ask each of our panelists in about 20 or 30 seconds to tell me what stories you'll be watching this week. Dave, I'll start with you. Uh, sure. So one thing I uh, did some reporting on was that we're getting a transition in Colombia. There will be a new president inaugurated on Sunday, the first leftist president in that country's history. Colombia has been a quite close partner with the United States. This is posing some difficulties for U.S. foreign policy that you now have somebody in there who is quite a critic of U.S. influence in the region. So that will be an interesting development to watch. Nina Maria? Well, we're one of the few news organizations with bureaus uh, still left in Beijing and Moscow. So clearly Taiwan and uh, further developments with uh, the Griner case and the prisoner swap, they're going to be our priorities because we've been at the court, at her trial every day uh, the, of the trial uh, with our crews. So yeah, both those locations are hot spots for us. Laura, what are you watching this week? Well, certainly I'm going to continue watching the ramifications from the Chinese military exercises around Taiwan. I, I do think that is a, a really big deal that we have to keep on, uh, keep our eyes on. But in, in addition, I will keep an eye on the new military aid to Ukraine. Um, it, it sounds like those are coming out at a steady pace now, uh, particularly as Ukraine is is trying to push Russian forces back in the Donbass and beginning this new counteroffensive in, in Kherson, trying to take that city back. So it's it's certainly a question of will, will the U.S. and Western allies continue to send the same amount of military equipment? Will they send new equipment that Ukraine has been asking for, such mm. as drones and fighter jets? Um, so that's what I'll be watching. Our thanks this week to Laura Seligman of Politico, Nina Maria Potts with Feature Story News, and David Lawler of Axios. Thank you all so very much. 1A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. And Barb Anchiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Sarah McCammon. This is 1A.